Well, I think most of us, it would be safe to say, we all want clarity. We all want things to be clear. Uh, we don't like being confused, right? I don't like being confused. I, I struggle with that a lot. I want clarity in my life. I want things to be clear. John is writing here, in the book of 1 John, was writing in a situation where there was some vagueness, some theological vagueness. There were some things that were unclear to folks. There was confusion among believers and the church about true religion, what true Christianity meant. There was some confusion. There was some things that need to be cleared up. And John, in writing this letter, as we go through here, and as we have, and as we'll continue, he gives several reasons why he writes this letter. But all of those seem to fall under one main idea in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John is concerned that confusion be done away with as it relates to what it means to be a Christian. True Christianity. And by the way, here's what we need to understand. John's ideas here are not his own. John told us in chapter 1 verse 5, you will turn the page in your Bible back to chapter 1, verse 5. That this message, this letter he has written, notice where this message comes from. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him, Jesus, and we proclaim to you. So what John is giving us here is not his own thoughts, his own philosophy. This is the message from God. The Holy Spirit of God has given them. This is the message from Jesus. These are not his ideas. 1 John can actually be divided up into two sections. Chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 3, verse 10, which we finished up last week. The message there in that section is God is light. In our section beginning today in verse 11 through the end of the letter, the message is this, God is love. So you have God is light, and now we're beginning this idea that God is love. John says in this second section, for those who said they belong to Jesus, love for one another is evidence that you truly belong to Jesus. He's trying to clear up confusion. Love for one another is an issue, listen church, that cannot be overlooked. John will show us that if in fact you hate one another, and yes that word shows up, it's the same as murdering your brother. You're just like Cain who murdered his brother. That's kind of hard to swallow, is it not? If you hate someone, Jesus says... I know what the law says. I know what the Ten Commandments say about killing someone, but here's what I say. That's true, but if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, you are a murderer. The reason this idea of loving one another is important is because it gives a wonderful witness to a watching world. Lost people watch those who claim to be Christians. You better, if you have an idea that they don't watch, you have badly misunderstood our world. They watch... And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for evidence. They, we claim that we have the truth. We know God. And if you're a lost person, someone tells you they have truth and they know God, what are they going to do? I want to see some. I want to see some evidence. And John says, "Love for one another is evidence." The world is looking at us. A world in which there's hate, and that's what we're going to see here. A world that's full of hate is looking for something, right? They're looking for the they're looking for love, and we claim to know that love, and they're looking at us and they're wanting to see that. 
Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world watches and they know you belong to Jesus if they see you what? Loving one another. Love is a distinct evidence that says to a watching world that you truly belong to Jesus and you follow Him. So what's the logical conclusion of that? If they, don't, if they look at your life and they don't see love, what do they conclude? You may not be a Christian, but more importantly, they go, everything he claims is just a bunch of hogwash. It's bunk. Looking at your handout there, you see the main idea is this. Hate identifies the world, but love identifies the church. Hate identifies the world, but love identifies the church. Look at verses 11 through 15. And here's what your handout, your outline I've given you says. Don't be like Cain. Love one another. It's simple what he's telling us in these verses. I love the book of John. I love the book of James. You know how I like them? They're black and white. I mean, they put it out there and you don't have to read and go, what is he really saying? It's clear. What he's saying, don't be like Cain. Love one another. Notice verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Verse 11 begins with the word for or because it connects us with verse 10. If you do not love your brother, you are a child of the devil and you are not of God. Verse 10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not what? Love his brother. Verse 10, the end of that, leads us into what we're looking at today. John begins in verse 11 by saying he has a message. And notice the message is a message that his readers have heard since when? From the very beginning. In other words, they heard this message at the beginning of their new life in Christ through the gospel. It's something they heard from the beginning. And what is the gospel message that they received when they were saved? It was simply what? We should love one another. And that's written in a tense that means it is a continuous thing that we do. We continually love one another. Now, I understand. Because sometimes I get there in what I'm about to say. If you're one who gets weary of hearing over and over about the need to love one another, what's the song that somebody wrote? Just another old love song. What do we need another one for? You need to remember that John wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, another passage about love. What's the big deal? God says it's a big deal. Who, by the way, the Holy Spirit inspires John to write this and he knows your heart. And why would he have John to write these things? Because he knows your heart. But sometimes love is not there. You and I need to examine ourselves constantly because our default mode is this. To slip back into selfishness and not loving other people. We're saved, we're born again, but that, that nature within us is still there. And our default mode is what? Who are, who, are, who are our three favorite people in the world? Me, myself, and I. Right? If you were to read the New Testament, here's what you would see. Repeated over and over and over. There are many things repeated over and over, but this one in particular sticks out. Love one another. Love each other. 
I'm going to read you a few passages. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the references to the other ones. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. I love this next part. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo. You're to outdo one another in trying to honor others. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing. Excuse me. Owe no one anything. Except to love each other. And that doesn't mean we don't borrow money and we, we can't have debts. You need to be wise in your debts. But it means if you have them, pay them. That's what it means. Owe no one anything except what? To love one another. You are to be in debt to other believers in loving them. You never get that paid off. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Ephesians 4.2 With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. You know what that word means? Enduring. Husbands and wives, we understand that, right? Probably better than anyone. Just ask my wife. She's endured a lot. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Those are just a few examples. Hebrews 10.24, I'm going to read this one. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Did you hear what that said? Let us consider, let us think about how to move, how to stir one another up to love and good works. You know what the next verse says? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Oh, me showing up here is a part of loving my brother? Absolutely. Because you showing up stirs and motivates other believers to keep the faith. Clearly, God thinks our loving one another is extremely important. Love for others flows out of God's love for us. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain. That's pretty clear, right? Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Love, again, I'm there with you sometimes. Love can be a vague thing, can it not? I love Krispy Kreme donuts. I love good berries. For those of you who don't know what good berries is, just come see me and I'll hook you up to some place you need to go. I love pizza. You just name it. We use that word. We throw it out a lot, right? Trying to define love can leave us unclear to exactly what that word means. John helps us by contrasting love with the opposite, hatred. Here's how you know love. Here's hate. Here's love. John actually contrasts the love we're to have for one another with Cain's murder of his brother. Cain's act of killing his brother is what? It's a direct contrast to loving someone. Cain's actions make it clear who his spiritual father is. Listen to John 8, 4, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 44. You, of your, you are of your father the devil. That's Jesus talking to some folks. 
That'll kind of put you in your spot, won't it? And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That word murder there, referring to Cain, refers to a brutal, violent act. Notice the reason for Cain's brutal, violent act. Why did he murder him? Notice what it says. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do you see that? Evil versus righteous. There's a contrast. John tells us exactly the reason. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that Abel brought a sacrifice to God. It was acceptable and it was righteous. Cain brought one and it was evil and what? Unacceptable. And Cain hated Abel over this and murdered his own flesh and blood. Look at verse 13. John here states, listen carefully to what he says. What has he just told us? Love one another. Don't be like Cain. Cain is selfish. He's worried about himself to the point that it caused him to kill his own brother. And notice what verse 13 says. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I just don't like it when people don't like me. Jesus said they're going to hate you. Why? Because they hated Him. Don't be surprised. This is what's called a present imperative. It's present in its tense, meaning it's an ongoing, and imperative means command. All your life, don't be surprised that the world hates you. In other words, it could be translated, stop being surprised. Christian, don't be surprised that the world hates you. That should not catch you off guard. What is John telling the Christian? He's saying that that it is natural for the world, represented by Cain, to hate you because its father hates you. Don't be surprised when people of this world, people like Cain, hate you. It's normal to their nature to hate you. Here's what I want to tell you. Don't be surprised when unsaved people act like unsaved people. We say that to one another all the time. That's just, they're just, they're the most ungodly, and they are. But lost people act like what? Lost people. They're going to act that way. What is John's call to a Christian? Verse 12. We shouldn't be like Cain. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're going, wait a minute. The world hates me, but I'm not supposed to hate it in return. That's right. Why is that? It's because the gospel has changed you, right? Amen. If you want to say amen, that's a good point. The gospel has changed you. Love is at the root of the gospel message. When John speaks of love, he points us to the supreme example of Jesus laying down His life for us. For God so loved... What? Say it. The world. What does the world do? It hates... God loves haters. So He sends His Son, Jesus, to die for them. I don't know about you, but that just kind of... When I think about that sometimes, that just kind of captures me and grips my heart. That I was one of those haters. And Jesus came and died for me to save me out of that hate, to, to destroy the works of Satan in my life. Let me give you a biblical definition of love in case you're wondering. 
Here's a biblical definition of love. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. I'll say that again. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment. I'm pausing for those of you who may be writing. That shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. What are you seeking? The highest good. Jesus sacrificed Himself because He cared for haters. He's committed to seeking the highest good of a world that hates Him, who in return hates you. It's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? Let me give you a biblical definition of hate. A selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own interest. A selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own... What is that saying? Me, me, me. Hate is a self-centered bent of fallen human nature that says, I'll help you if it helps me. Or if it's not too much of a hassle for me. But if it comes down to you or me, I'm going to look out for who? Number one. This characterizes the unbelieving in the world. The world is motivated by self-interest, right? Self-sacrifice to the world, they think we're absolutely crazy. They think we have lost our mind. You want me to sacrifice myself for someone else. Some of you may be thinking... I know of genuine examples of love on the part of unbelievers, right? Some of you are going, I know some unbelievers and they love. They, 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 they self-sacrifice, right? What are some examples? Are there unbelievers in the military who lay down their life? Absolutely. How about donating a kidney to a family member or a friend or even a perfect stranger? Unbelievers do that, right? Parents sacrifice for their children. We can all say amen to that, right? Children, mark it down. Your day's coming. But don't worry. You'll do it. Never give a second thought to it. It won't be hard for you to do that. Can unbelievers love? Absolutely. But to that I would say, these are examples of love. But I would also say that love is one of God's good gifts that He has not withheld from lost people. More importantly, I say to you that such examples serve as a witness to the lost person. And by that I mean you point the unsaved to the source of love that is within them. And who is that source of love that's within them? John chapter 4 verse 7 says, Love is from God. And still the fact that God has not completely withdrawn His grace from His This rebellious world does not contradict John's idea here that the world is marked by hatred. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. All people need to be saved in order to do what? Pass out of death into life. The only 
other time that phrase appears is in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment. He has passed out of death into life. I want you to miss something that's very important here. Why do you think John, and more in particular the Holy Spirit, why do you think he chose Cain as the example? You ever thought of that? Why would he use Cain? The hard drive would be clicking right now. Why did he choose Cain? Let me help you out. Who were Cain's parents? Adam and Eve. Right? What did Adam and Eve do? Disobeyed God. John chose Cain because he was the first person born on this earth under the curse of sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed. Their first child was a what? A murderer. Cain's hatred toward Abel illustrates the self-centered evil bent of the fallen human heart. It shows us our own hearts. That's why the Holy Spirit told John to use this. Look, people, here's who you are. Cain characterizes the hatred of a fallen human race. He's pointing us toward original sin. We don't begin as neutral people and then decide either to choose or reject God. People are born in this world in a state of spiritual death. You are born a hater of God. How do I know that? It's in the Bible. In particular, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me read those right quickly. And you, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to believers. And listen to what he says. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins. You were what? Dead in your sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You know who that is? That's the devil. Before you were saved, you walked according to the world. You were haters. And by the way, you followed the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does anybody know what the first word of verse 4 is? But God. Being rich in mercy, saved you out of deadness and brought you into life. Verses 14 and 15 here. I'm going to read these together. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we, what? Love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has what? Eternal life abiding in Him. A hater does not have eternal life abiding in Him. We know, He says, that we passed out of death into life because we, what? We love the brothers. We love one another. Love for others, love for other believers is evidence of what? New life. John says we can know we're saved, we can know that we have eternal life because we what? We love one another. Does that make sense? If you love people, love other brothers, you it's 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 a good sign that you are a believer. You are you have eternal life. Notice once again the contrast. Whoever does not love abides in what? Death. John's point is this a person whose life is marked by selfish hatred of others 
shows no evidence of being a follower of Christ. However, he is not saying that murderers or haters cannot be saved. Why? Because there's a room full of us sitting here today that know that. Paul was a murderer before he was saved. You know the Apostle Paul, what did he do? On the road to Damascus when he got saved, where was he headed? He had an agreement that gave him the authority to do what? Kill Christians. How about David and Moses? They murdered after they were saved. After they became, put their faith in God and followed Him. John is pointing to the overall direction of a person's life. Remember the word practice from last week? A person whose life is marked by a pattern of selfishness, envy, jealousy, strife, and hatred gives evidence that he's spiritually dead. He's unsaved. Salvation. I need to caution here. Our eternal life, listen carefully, is not earned by loving others. Because lost people love people, right? But they love because God has put love in them because love is from God. Loving does not earn salvation, but it's evidence that you have been saved. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How does God view hatred? Everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. He views people who hate, who are selfish and envious and self-centered as murderers. You may never physically kill another person... But an attitude in the heart is equal to murdering someone physically. Jesus said that, right? You have heard it said, do not kill. But I say, do not hate. Let me read this for you. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Murderers will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, you may never physically hate someone, but if it's in here, it's the same as carrying out the act. John's words here are evidence, it's a test of a person's spiritual condition. They're also an exhortation to those who profess to believe in Jesus. As believers, we have to battle... Hatred that stems from our own selfishness sometimes, right? I know I do. If you're here, this is how we apply this. And I'm saying this based on last week. If you're here today and you you are unsaved, listen to me, listen to me carefully. You need to know that Christians aren't perfect. What do we do, Christians? Remember last week, I think I said it about seven times, we sin. But our overall pattern of life is to be a life of love for other Christians as well as those who are unsaved. That should be our life's direction. Let me ask you something, Christian. Is there someone you may need to go to and confess your sin of hate or anger toward them? Is that something you may need to do? Look at verses 16 through 18. We don't need to miss what John's doing here. Look closely. There's a contrast between hate, which is a mark of the world, and love that marks the church. Notice in verse 16, love is demonstrated how? In God's firstborn Son, Jesus. By this we know 
love. And how do we know love? That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You know what this verse is telling us? It says, you will know the ultimate display of what real love is, what God's love is. You look at the cross. When you read the New Testament, you should see that when the Bible speaks of God's love, there is never a disconnect with the idea of God's love and the cross. They're always together. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners... You know what word sticks out to me there? Still. While I was still a hater, what did Jesus do? He died for me. If you've ever wondered what real love looks like, look at God's love. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who was willing to lay down His life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Listen to this. The righteous for the unrighteous. And why did He do that? Listen, that He might bring us to God. I look at that from the other side of the coin. If Jesus, the righteous, doesn't die for the unrighteous, then I don't get to what? Come to God. What should be the response of the believer? Look here. Serving means sacrifice. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And what's the, what's the response of the Christian? We ought to lay down our lives for the brother. The word ought means obligation. You have a duty. Part of your duty as a Christian is to give your lives for other believers. Why should I do that, you say? What in the world would possibly motivate me to do something like that? It's because as a Christian, you know real love. You know and have experienced the result of Jesus laying down His life for you. I'm going to quote Danny Aiken here from his commentary on 1 John. The Bible says you want to see love, look at the cross. The Bible says you want to show love, look at the cross. The Bible says you want to know love, look at the cross. The Bible says you want to live love, look at the cross. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and didn't or couldn't. He died the death that we should have died, but now we don't have to. Verse 17, serving means giving. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Verses 17 and 18, the old saying is, John gets down to where the rubber meets the road. He gives us some basic practical counsel about love in the context of everyday life. I think, and I say this with some humility, I think it's quite possible that John has in mind the teaching of someone else in Scripture. I think he has in mind the teaching of Jesus and the Good Samaritan. Jesus taught in that parable that we must not ignore others' needs. Instead, we sacrifice our time, energy, and money to help them out. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Two people have come along. One of them's religious, right? Snub their nose, keep going. The Good Samaritan comes by, and what does he do with this guy? Picks him up, takes him to the Holiday Inn, tells him to order room service, whatever he needs, clean his clothes. Here's the money, and when I come back, if that wasn't enough, I'll settle up with you. John says Jesus had a life to give. 
But you have stuff. You have the world's goods to give. Jesus saw your need and He gave His life. You see your brother's need and you close your heart, He says. Notice what John says. How then does God's love abide in you? You know what's implied there? It doesn't. God's love is not there. God's love is not there. You close your heart to someone who's in great need. Now let me, let me say this. We help when people need help. But that does not mean that you throw caution to the wind. Right? God gave you a mind to think and discern what you need to do with your resources in helping. You're not to haphazardly give out money to those who are irresponsible. Because if you enable irresponsibility, you don't love people, right? Because you're helping them continue in that way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy by this. No such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. We need discernment and wisdom to know how best to help someone in need. Verse 18. We'll try to wrap it up here. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John tells us that love is what? It's an action word. Love is always demonstrated in good deeds done in the context of truth, he says. Mere words can be empty, right? You can even do something for someone, but your motives may not be pure. Thus, your intentions can be simple. John says, let us love, but how do we love? We love in truth. Don't ever think that God doesn't care about our motives as well as our actions. That's why it's important when you give, that you give with what? The heart. How does God want you to love? He wants you to love and care for others just like you have been loved and cared for by Jesus. You want to see love, indeed in truth, where do we look? We look to the cross. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, in verse 15 of chapter 3, there's a verse there that tells us, God says, I'm going to send someone who's going to redeem you. But God just didn't use words, did He? He actually did something. He sent Jesus to die for us. Let's conclude with this. Your life as a Christian, our lives as a church, must be marked by love for one another. It should be marked by the same love that we have received from Jesus. This love makes a very distinct contrast between us and the world. We are not like Cain. Instead, we are to be like Jesus, sacrificing and laying down our lives for the good of others. But when we do that for lost people, what does it do? Lost people are hurting. They're looking for someone, something. They're looking for this idea of truth and love. And when we do that, they look and say, maybe there is something to this Jesus, this church thing. We never know what that will do to someone. Let's do some practical application here as quickly as I can. Um, I want to point out something to you here. We're talking about loving people, right? Let's talk about loving someone Versus liking someone. Alright? Not, listen, not every child of God, not every believer is equally, equally likable. Right? You don't have to nod your head if you don't want to. 
I would go so far as to say there are some Christians that we don't like. Let's just be honest. There are some people who maybe say they believe in Jesus, but you don't like them. Now let's put the shield on the other foot. They don't like you very much either. There may be all kinds of reasons for that. It may be that they and even yourself are not very sanctified. You're not very mature spiritually. There are other Christians that you don't necessarily like, but you are to love them anyway, right? You are to love them as Jesus loved the church and gave His life for it. It's easy to love people you like, right? We have no problem with that. That's easy. That doesn't cost us anything to love people we like, right? But it costs us something to love people we don't particularly care for. The temptation is that you begin to think thoughts that are evil and how easily those thoughts can turn into hateful thoughts and jealous thoughts and spiteful thoughts. Here's what I want you to understand. It's easy to read these words here, right? And say, isn't that wonderful? Isn't those words that John wrote down, aren't they just beautiful? But that's all just in your head if that's what you're thinking. Here's the test for you and me today. When the sermon's finished and when our worship gathering's over, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Cain is without a doubt one of the bad people of the Bible, right? If you're making a list of bad and good, where do you put Cain? He's on the bad side. We tend to look down on Cain, right? Have you ever thought that being angry at someone made you just as guilty in God's sight as Cain was? You're a murderer just like Cain. And here's what I want to say to you. How far are you willing to go to show others the love that Jesus showed you? How can you minister to others and do it sacrificially? Are there any opportunities that God has brought across your path to do that? And one in particular here, very practical, and I choose this category of people because I am one, and I think this is where this can start. It starts in the home. It starts with husbands. It starts with men who lead their families. Husbands, you know what the Bible calls you to do? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. And that also filters down to the family, your children. You are the leader of the home. God says you're the leader. Sacrifice. Lay down your life for your family. Your children will watch your life and they'll learn what it is to love others. That's pretty simple, is it not? Husbands, we bear a great responsibility. God just didn't throw you in a position to throw a leader on you just because He thought that was a good thing. God gave you a responsibility to love your family, lay down your life and sacrifice for them to point them to the Gospel. To point your family to what it is to know Christ and to love others. Let's pray.